You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is a podcast from ComediansComedian.com. This is the Comedians Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and this is a live special uh, coming to you live from the Darlington Comedy Festival, courtesy of Neil Jolly and everyone at Hilarity Bites. This is Deliso Chaponda. I feel like we should... There's loads of different starting points. You're the first uh, Malawian guest I've ever I had on the podcast. I think I'm the only possibility you had. Yeah. Because I'm the only comic. Are you? Are there any other... Have you got, like, a Google search set up for Malawian oh, yes. comics to find out if anyone else... When another one comes out, I'm taking that, a hit on them. <laughs> <laughs> so, but essentially, I've inspired a few people. Okay. But I wouldn't say they're comics yet. Okay. Because I went to the amateur night, and they're, they're just people talking at present. But okay. eventually, you see a few nuggets... And I'm like, in a year or two, one of them's just going to, you know, explode out of nowhere. Amazing. So this is like, you, you will be the, the godfather of, of Malawian, Malawian comedy. comedy. Yes, actually, no. Actually, in the shows I've done in Malawi, I've had opening acts. So we've got the best of the people trying out. Okay. And we've given them five minutes. Yes. And they can do a five-minute set. That's great. It's just they, they aren't yet at the point where they can do and it's as But it's as your support act. So you're almost... Yes. You, know, um, you know the rapper uh, and DJ Grandmaster Flash? Yes. Yeah, so he apparently... Uh, he invented the title, but he now confer- <laughs> he, he confers Grandmaster status upon other people that he oh, likes. that's ingenious. So you should totally call them like Chapondites or something. Yeah. The Chaponda Junior, <laughs> I pass it on to you. But yes. So, what, so in what circumstances did you... You didn't start doing comedy in Malawi. No, no, no. I started in Canada. So I was at university in Canada, and I, I always wanted to be a writer. I had no idea comedy existed. And then, uh, because Just for Laughs is a big thing in Canada, there yes. are lots of little open mics. And I used to go to any open mic, you know, poetry, whatever, uh, rap, anything. And so I tried the comedy, and it just, it just clicked more than all so, the others. So you tried poetry and you tried rap? Oh, I tried everything. I, yeah. What, what, when you say everything, what other stuff? I'm trying to get a sense of the, I'm trying to get a sense of the pre-comedy Deliso. desperation of being on stage. So I did poetry, I did short stories on stage, I, I tried to sing, I did anything. I just wanted to be up there. Okay. Yeah, I did debate. I was like in, a, in the debate sort of crew... Yeah, <laughs> the debate crew. That's no, no, no. <laughs> quite an urban debate. It was a debating game. team, but if gotcha. you didn't make the team, yeah. then you were just in the crew and you used to go practice and audition for the team, essentially. Okay, and what were you studying at the time? So I was studying computer programming. Ah, I see. So you were a frustrated performer. <laughs> why why a were frustrated you frustrated writer? Okay, because I wanted to write to study writing, so I got a scholarship to uh, a, a University of the Arts in America, but I still needed my family support. Okay. And they were like, no way are we supporting you <laughs> to yes. go learn how to write stories. So the only compromise we could get, because I still wanted to go to university, was uh, one of my acceptances was to computer programming. So I see. Okay. And you're, so you're from a family background, from like a middle class background? Well, it's you're, very you're... interesting, because I would say that in Malawi, we are upper class. Okay. Or what, first class. What's the class? What's the top class? I think, it, I think it's upper class. Upper class, not first class. Yeah. Okay, right. So in Malawi, Business we're class. upper class. But if you, trans- if you translate that into England, yes. then we're middle class. Okay. Right? So like every class is minus one if you're converting <laughs> it in terms of... Because like a, an upper class person in Malawi has a big house, yep. right? Maybe a car, at most two cars, Right. 
an upper class person here has seven mansions, sure. and a, a team of trains. So it's just a different scale. Okay. So your and your father was uh, the minister for. Yes, education. He, he right? was the minister of education. Right now, he's the minister of foreign affairs. Okay. Yeah. So you felt. I mean, did you feel growing up a certain amount of uh, responsibility? Oh no, he wasn't. A, he became a minister after retiring. After I was already a comic. Okay. Right. He became so, a minister after retiring. So what, yes. So what did he, he retired. Do? He worked for the UN. Okay. Right. Uh, he worked for UNHCR, and it was very kind of poetic because he started out. He was a refugee, ran away from Malawi because we had a you know crazy dictator sort of fellow in power and then he ended up eventually working for UNHCR and then worked for maybe 25 years I'm not even sure of the numbers and then retired and then ended up in the Malawi government. Okay so your status now as a globe-trotting comedian that performs all over the world is actually fairly in keeping with his wishes for you. Yeah well yes indeed because the truth is like I was moving around since I was a child so I'm a citizen of nowhere bouncing around that's just me. Yes, I watched on the. Uh, I watched uh, by way of research for this. I mean, we've gigged together. I met yes. you maybe ten years ago when we started. It was ages ago. I think the first gig we ever did together was uh, a competition. A, I think. Oh, wh- go on. Which one was it? Was it Leicester f- comedy or something like that? I've never done Leicester. No. Okay, I, but I feel like it was a competition. I the first one I remember meeting you at was uh, Christian Knowles's gig in. It's one of the. It's like it's not Chatham, but it's. Okay, it was in a, wow. I should have remembered the name. Otherwise, this it's will gone. be very boring for anyone else. If anyone else remembers uh, performing at or can, watching that gig, I please can tweet me. I remember where I gigged last week. Yes, <laughs> well, it's, it disappears, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. But I tell you what, one of the most, before we get onto the, the, the globetrotting stuff and your sort of, uh, mm-hmm. your, the Africa tour and all the rest of it, um, one of, the, 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 the go-to fact in my head about comedian Deliso Chaponda, without well, two things. One is that I remember seeing you before a gig and you had a huge ring binder in front of you. Yes. And you had every gig, every joke that you had. And it was, in, it was all built into... And I was very new to comedy at this time. I was like, oh, is, is this how you're supposed to do it? You had a, a sort <laughs> oh, of a, no. a, a kind of analogue spreadsheet of every joke. And I remember it was every joke, the duration of the joke in seconds, yes. whether it was blue or not, and yes. what environments it would go down or not go down well in. Yes. It's it, got so much more complex. Because well, this, I got here and Neil said he saw you with an iPad. Presumably yes, you've updated the system. Because the software has now caught up with my brain, <laughs> I can now have loads of subcategories. It is absolutely amazing. So now I've got if it works in a corporate, if it works in Africa, I've got whether it's a closer, whether it's a, it gets a round of applause, whether it's opening. I've got so many extra things. I'm so glad we already found out that you're a computer programmer before I <laughs> yes. asked this question. <laughs> yes, indeed. It would be so lazy of me to draw any... <laughs> no, no, no. So, of course, this is why I use the knowledge, even though it's and, still in there. And so where did, that, where did that come from? Did you see someone else doing that? Did you have a mentor in comedy when you started? Or did you just go, did you just sort of see, this seems like a sensible way to do it? No, it came from the fact that I am a zero improviser comic. Okay. Right? I am a pre-planner. The way I used to compare a lot was from writing lots of jokes for every situation, and every time a new situation came up, writing a new joke for it. Okay, right? so the so first the next time... time okay, okay. I would just have lots of ammunition, but yes. no quick wit so on So you'd stage. be in the UK, and you'd say, where are you from? And someone would say, the Isle of Wight, and you'd go... Go. Oh, oh. <laughs> yes. And then yes. The, on the train on the way home, you'd be going, right, Isle of Wight Isle of research. Wight, Isle of Wight, that's exactly it. <laughs> now, the other thing is, so sometimes you go to a show, and you have no time to prepare. Like, you go there, and I walk in, and I see, oh, okay, everyone's sort of over 60, okay, this, the, the, the person organizing the gig said, be clean, mm-hmm. and I just felt, because I'm a pre-planner, right, I just need to be able to put into a, a computer or look at a file and say, okay, where are all my clean gigs? Where are all my gigs which are fine for religious people? Yes, okay. And then build a set really quickly. okay. So, and is that a successful system to you? Do you, do you feel that that's worked? Does that system it have any works, disadvantages? It works really well, even though half the time I'm just fooling myself because <laughs> I end up doing different jokes than the ones which oh, I no, planned. don't tell me that. But, but I'll get, I, I'll use quite a few of them. Okay. And then while I'm in the moment, as I'm more experienced, I, I'm less slavish to it. Okay. But back in the day, it would be exactly what I planned because I would plan... A, an entry point and an exit point for each one. So I'd plan the segues okay. for all the jokes. So that was 
how I remembered it. So I had to have them all set out. And would you have situations then where, because you weren't an improviser, something that happened in the room would floor you? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, like, I, generally, I find, though, when something strange happened in the room, the bar is very low. Okay. You can say something which isn't that funny, and it gets a big laugh. These are the secrets, ladies and gentlemen. People, <laughs> no, people are just caught up in the, the magic of the fact that it just happened. Sure. And so I'd say something, I'd get a laugh, and I'd feel a little dirty, because I'd be like, that's not that funny. Okay. So then I'd go home and I'd write an actually funny response to that random thing happening. This reminds me of something Marcus Birdman said. We both worked, worked a lot with the brilliant Marcus Birdman. He said, what comedy's like is you go on stage and someone throws a chair at you and you fall over. And then you go on stage the next night and someone else throws a chair at you and you fall over and the gig dies and it's awful. And about five chair throws later, you think, I should write a joke about what to do when I get a chair <laughs> thrown at me. And then you, you don't write that joke. You don't get around to it. And then another chair and another chair and another chair. And then you write the joke and it doesn't work. And then so, eventually, like, 50 chair throws down the line. Someone throws a chair at you. You dodge it and slam a line about having a chair throw at you. And you're carried out of the gig on everyone's shoulders. That's you, it. You sound like you've eliminated steps four, four, one, two through 49. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I feel those are too many. I would, the second gig, they'll throw the chair at me. I'd snatch it and throw it back. Very good. But it's just like, because... I get so emotionally damaged by failure, right? I don't understand comics who die all the time and keep going back to a show. Each time I do badly, it crushes my soul. So I realized this early on, and I was like, I have to eliminate all possibility of this happening. I love it. <laughs> Everyone is so different. So let's, before we, before we dig into this, just let's, let's establish what terms we're talking. When you say comics that die over and over again, do you mean bad comics, or do you mean brilliant comics who take risks, and sometimes the risks don't pay off? Either one. You had a bad gig. To me, it's a failed gig, right? You could okay. be a genius who had a failed gig, or a person who's just horribly not funny and you had a failed gig but how you cope with that failure right some people brush it off me it crushes me so do you think though that that that, has that ever stunted your creativity because you've been unwilling to take risks you know if you're not if you're not prepared to fail then maybe you don't go the extra mile creatively i actually think it's the opposite i think because of my personality it's it's been the trigger which makes me work and become better because what I'll do is, let's say, I, I don't ever stop. For example, I decided a few years ago to talk about, I, I saw lots of comedians doing these pedophile jokes, which were, I felt were very gratuitous and not very intelligent. And I had some bad things happen in my childhood. So I was like, I want to talk about this on stage, right? Now, the first time I brought it up, everyone got really uncomfortable, right? And I, I died inside because the gig was a failure. And I was like, okay. I don't want to not talk about this. I need to find a way to talk about this. So I wrote and I rewrote and I rewrote. And by the time I brought it on stage, it worked. And it was because I, it's that fear of the joke going to dead silence, which made me not scrap it until it was really ready. And I tried like 15 different ways before even trying it on stage. Okay, so in between you saying it on stage for the first time and it bombing. Yes. And... You saying it on stage, you said it this, the second time you said it on stage, it worked. It. it worked. Because you'd done so many rewrites. I'd done so many rewrites, but also it wasn't like it was rewrites to nothing. I'll call a friend and I'll say, hey, what do you think of this? Okay, okay. But that one was a hard, that's probably the exception because it was hard for it to talk, to talk about it with a friend because they have feelings for you. Yes. So that one, I didn't do my usual thing of trying it with everyone. It was just the example which I thought of. But sure. And that must, that must mirror the way in which an audience has feelings for you. And part of yes. that, that difficulty is because they want you to succeed. They want the comedian to be all right. But interestingly, that's how I found a solution. Essentially, I act like a dick. And I tell a story in which I am a dick. So they already don't like me. So when I reveal this about myself they're not necessarily immediately empathetic towards me because it comes out in me being really mean to my girlfriend. So I found a sneaky way to talk about it. And That's then, an astonishing discovery. And then I pull off the... the, the, the so you need, to, you need to kind of jump, you need to pull the rug out from under their empathy by making yeah. them dislike you as a strategy... Yes. So that you, my God, this and is a, then, and, and then I, it's I can like see a, you writing this in chalk on a white <laughs> glass thing with the camera going, it's a beautiful mind. But I think it's also because, you see, before I was a comedian, I, I, I'm a fiction writer. So mm. I write lots of fiction. So I think that I think in stories, right? So 
and not so much just in a joke, but like, let's say I'm doing a five minutes. I think of what story is happening with the audience and what they see in me and how is that changing in every moment. Because you can do 10 jokes in 10 different orders and in each order, you're telling a different story. Yes. Yes, that's fascinating. I, was, I interviewed Justin Morehouse for this show a couple of days ago and he was saying that he's, he's got a couple of things um, in, in his office uh, he's got some bits of paper tacked up on the wall, which are one of them. I think is from Pixar, which is the which sort of explains story structure in a few simple sentences. Oh, right, right, and right. he and he applies that. It's interesting. It should sort of come up in the same week. So, what other what other lessons have you taken from uh, fiction, from writing fiction into stand up comedy? I think it's all all things about status, right? Because essentially, uh, in a story, people's interaction with each other is all status. So it's like a king and a servant. And when you mess around with those, it's funny, right? And that you do that a lot in, in a good short story. The status is flipping all over the place. Okay. Now, with an audience, generally, the status stays the same. But I find ways in the stories I tell and the jokes I tell. So, for example, if I'm doing a joke about, again, that girlfriend mm-hmm. and I, where I'm being a dick to her, she ends up winning, and then I end up winning. And so we constantly are, are, are on a seesaw of power. Okay. And each time it flips, it gets a big laugh. And this is... When you were saying that material where you rewrote and rewrote the, the paedophilia material, yes. you rewrote and rewrote, is that, is that typical of, your, of the amount of writing that goes into the finished product the first time or the second time it's said? Because no. as, as a fiction writer, yes. I'm sort of imagining yes. you're writing a series of short yeah. stories. Fiction writers obviously don't perform their material. I guess there's no method to it. There's no consistency to it. Because sometimes... I have bits of material which, as I think it, it goes from thought to new material night, does amazingly well. It's done. Okay. Right? It's ready to go. It's going in the ring by now. Yes. Yeah. But the, at, the, at the same time, I have premise to joke to failure on a new material night. I, don't, I still find it funny. So I don't give up on it. So I'll rewrite it from a different angle, and then I'll try it again. Okay. And then I'll rewrite it from a different angle and try it again. Until it works, and um, when you when you say from a different angle, let's get right into the the nuts yeah. and bolts of the of the technique. There's you sat writing. You writing on a laptop? Are you writing longhand? What's your actually? So again, it's a mixture, right? Either if it's a thing where the words matter. So like if it's um, I recently did a joke where it's responding to a, a woman saying uh, I, I cried so hard when recommending a movie. Yeah. And it's to do with the words she used, the cried so hard. So the punchline and the order of the words really matter a lot. So for that, I write it down. Okay. For story, I just write the word. Like I say, tell the story about going to the massage parlor. That's all I need. Because the words don't matter. And it'll probably change as I tell it. I see. So some of your writing is also happening on stage. Yes. In the story. In... Well, it's, it's not. I, it's writing in the, I know the whole story. So I'll plan the whole story and all the twists and turns in my head, but I won't plan the words. Then it's like telling it to you right now. Okay. Because I'm speaking naturally. Sure. And I'm not speaking in an artificial way. But some jokes you have to speak in an artificial way because you need that word to come before that word so that it creates the same rhythm. Yes. As the next one, so the punchline works. So, what regard do you have for truth in your stand-up comedy? If you're, if you have a background in uh, being a writer of fiction, yes. and we're looking at jokes in the format of, of them all being short stories, does yes. the truth? How much does the truth matter? If I was a great actor, the truth wouldn't matter. I would. When I write for other people, I can write anything, right? But the problem is because I'm not a good actor, I have to generally have the setup be the truth. Because then the emotional honesty comes out. Right? Because I'm a little worried, actually. Like, the show I'm doing right now is called Love Sucks. Right? And I wrote it all when I was broken and lonely and depressed. And now I've met someone. And I've still got to do the rest of the run. And now, and like, I don't know if the emotional honesty will be as brilliant as it was in the first preview yes, okay. when the bitterness was real. <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> so, essentially, the only... But in terms of writing a joke... It doesn't matter to me. I can write a joke in any character, but the problem is to perform it often, it has to have some kind of realness. And sometimes I'll write a joke which is hilarious on page, and then I'll be like, oh, I can't pull this off because I don't believe it. And so I'll try to sell it to someone. You'll try to sell it to someone else? Yeah, yeah. 
Tell me about this. So very rarely do you hear a oh, comic oh, talk really? in such no, blunt no, no. terms. Essentially what happens is, over the time uh, you're a comic, you meet some more famous comedians, right? And so every now and then, I offered them some jokes for money. No? Okay. Without, I, I won't ask you to name names. A lot, I don't no, a lot of to... people, oh, you'll ruin the whole process. Yeah. But a lot of people do this, in fact, uh, because a lot of people have dedicated writers. Now, yes. the thing is, I don't think I could do that because, unfortunately, I'm greedy. So I'll write a great gag, and then I'll be like, oh, I, I should give this. No. So if I do a writing session for someone, I'll want to keep a lot of the good nuggets. But when I write something where I, it's totally useless to me, yes. or I wrote a joke which you have to be a parent to, to, to pull off, then I'm like, okay, who do I know who's a parent who's more famous than me? Okay. And then I've I always, I've always been them. sort of peripherally aware of that mm. thing. I've never written for anyone. And uh, I suppose... Um, and, you know, it, that's a whole debate in comedy yes. as to whether or not it's sort of, you know, is it, is it pulling the wool over the audience's eyes to, to for, but I, I you know, I, I think sort of all, all's fair, really. Yeah. But there is, that, there is that thing of like, um, of when you see programme associates credited yes. on a TV show, you're like, oh, that means the writers. Yes, that's right. But no one likes to say the writers because that... <laughs> I think say writers. I mean, like some of my favourite shows, like I love, um, what's this, The Colbert Report. One of my friends is a writer for it. Yes. And they've got a great relationship uh, they call them writers. Mm-hmm. He thanks them whenever he can, and I'm like, "That's how it should be. It's yes. not a dark secret. It's something you're proud of." But I, but I think it's slightly different, isn't it? If you're writing for stand up, because stand up, it's, okay. it's part magic, isn't it? The illusion is it's totally personal. If you oh, take okay. someone like, and I, you know, I'm not accusing anyone, and yeah. I'm not, I'm not yes. making any <laughs> accusations about yes. anyone. I'm just thinking of the biggest comic I can think of, say Peter Kay, for example. Yes. He, what part of what we're buying into is that these are his opinions, like it or not. We're going, we're, we're hearing someone go, This is my life. And I think I'm not complaining about it. I'm just, I'm, su- I'm supposing that maybe that's why we're a little cagier when talking about stand up than we are about something like the Colbert. But at the same time, everyone who I've ever written for, it's not as easy as I write the joke, they do it as written. There's always like, it's more like you're a premise generator. Yep. And sometimes, They'll take the premise and they'll twist it and personalise it. Absolutely. Well, that's why I think that the idea of the issue of paying for jokes or paying for writers isn't as bad as it isn't as greasy as it seems. Yeah. Because we've all been backstage in dressing rooms, having come off stage, and someone's run up and gone, "Oh, I've got a great tag for you." And that's usually and how it starts. The best bit. <laughs> but that's usually how it starts because yes. they like your tags and they're like they they keep in contact with you, and then one day you're like, "How about this?" Now, I know that there will be newer comics listening to this who are thinking, I'm going to, next time I do a gig with anyone that's big, I'm going to go up to them afterwards and offer them free tags. Oh, no, 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 no. You have to be friends. Tell them Deliso sent you. You have to be friends. You have to be, you have to be friends and you have to be equals. In that, if you don't know the person well, it can be extremely insulting. Yes, yes. I made the mistake early on of, of recommending it. Recommending a tag to someone. Go on, can, really you, can you tell me, us who? No. <laughs> <laughs> and just the, the recoil in their face made yeah. me feel tiny. I was like, what did I do? What did I do? Because I was used to suggesting to all my peers. Yes. And then I was like, oh no, you're on a whole other stratosphere. And for me to suggest to you is like a little ant coming up to, to, to the spider and saying, hey, this is how you should catch flies. So this is Deliso, everyone. Uh, he's a fantastic act, a really good guy, as you can hear. Um, I don't know whether I have yet likened him to a member of the Red Dwarf cast uh, by this section of the show, uh, and I'm too busy to go back and check, but he really does remind me of that dude. Um, what a nice guy. So great for him to come on the show. And as you can hear, what an unusual story. My God, the only, like, the only actual comic the only touring comic from Malawi what an incredible position to be in and uh, after this recording we went uh, before the the previews that we then did that night uh, we went and had a meal together Deliso was absolutely charming and we had a really exciting empire building chat Deliso like me is someone who is very excited about the idea of online sales and marketing and how to push one's own career 
um, and to just do all the other work of being a comedian besides loafing around and coming up with ideas. So a really good guy to follow and someone that you should uh, you should pay attention to what he's doing and how he's doing it. He's a very, very canny customer indeed. Now, a couple of thanks. Uh, oh, first, while I remember, run, Paul, run. Uh, there's uh, a listener, a ComCom listener called Paul, who came to see my show at The Good Ship in Kilburn. Uh, on Monday night, a preview that was really good fun. I, I'm in that lovely stage uh, now where I feel like, okay, okay, it's all going to be fine. I've got a show. It's just just buffing and polishing and varnishing for the next month. Um, but Paul is running an ultra marathon and is probably listening to this episode as he runs it. A hundred kilometers. Oh my God. I wonder how many of them you've done so far. I think you said that was something like 12 hours. Um, good for you. You're running for all of us. You know, when someone's... Uh, you know, someone's pregnant, they go, I'm eating for two. Or if someone's partner is pregnant, they go, I'm drinking for three. Uh, you are running for all of us, Paul. Run, man. <laughs> uh, also, I want to thank some log legends, some logging legends. These people have all earned the rights to, to give themselves the title Podblin uh, for the rest of the month, at least. Uh, thank you very much to Ian Seaburn, Paul Savage, Ty Conway, Jason Lower, Connor Wallace, Fran Miller-Petzo, Will Reynolds, Tom Bates, Andy Eisgate, or possibly Isgate, Anthony Clough, 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 it's got to be Clough, hasn't it? Anthony Clough, I'm sorry, I was thrown by Isgate. Anthony Clough, Andy McAfee, Sam Healer, Helen Donoghue, Neil Peters, Colin McKenzie, Austin, I'm going to go with Yule, let's go with Yule. You will? You will. Austin, Austin, y'all. Is that a Texan thing? I've no idea. Anyway, thank you to all of those fabulous, fabulous people for responding as quickly as they did um, to a request I put out for uh, for now. This is something I've been uh, banging on about in uh, in uh, shadowy terms for the last few months. I think we're on course to launch the new ComCom website next week. Uh, it's going to be much more uh, engaging and much more sticky, if you know about uh, web terminology. Apparently that's a fine thing to say uh, about websites. Um, each episode is going to have its own page. There's going to be an opportunity for Facebook comments underneath each page. There's going to be links and a word cloud, and it's going to be searchable, much more easily searchable. Um, so <laughs> links and a word cloud. <laughs> Don't I sound like someone in the 90s who's just learned to about the interweb. Um, but it should be a lot of fun. Uh, uh, James Hingley, the brilliant James Homebrew Hingley, has been, uh, has been helping me, well, helping me sort of largely doing all the work himself and then batting away my frequent concerns. Um, so that should launch next week. And all of the people, all of the, uh, the podblins that I've just mentioned, uh, have helped me in my hour of need doing some important tagging work to help make the archive searchable and uh, current and consistent and correctly spelt and punctuated and things like that. So thank you to all of you. Um, that's it for now. The Buxton podcast last night. You know that when I say that's it for now, I'm going to say two other things. I did the podcast last night live at Soho Theatre. It was a sellout. It was a phenomenal show. Thank you so much to Adam Buxton for coming along and being my guest for that show and bringing me such wonderful presents. Uh, I'm going to release that episode next week, so look forward to that if you weren't one of the people that stuffed themselves into the downstairs bar at the Soho Theatre to watch it. Um, so much fun. Really, really a lovely one to go out with on a bang at the end of that uh, four-month run of Soho podcast shows. Hopefully there's uh, more of those in the offing. We'll just have to wait and see. So thanks to the Log Legends, thanks to those that came uh, to the Buxton podcast, and thank you very, very much to everyone that's donated um, over Glastonbury weekend. I was really thrilled. I was at Glastonbury doing a small amount of work and earning an appropriate amount of money, but mostly on holiday. And uh, it was great to have my phone ping every so often after the Dara podcast went out and, and lots of you were motivated to donate to the show. All of your donations go into one big bank account that I never dip into for anything other than podcast business, uh, for travel and web hosting and web design and possibly new equipment here and there. Um, and uh, sort of Edinburgh running costs, bringing the show from Edinburgh, all of those things. So I I'm just really, really knocked out that you guys see fit to continue supporting the show in the way that you do. If you're someone listening to this who's, who's never donated, then of course you know that there is no obligation, but uh, your donations pay for the people who can't afford to donate. So get online, click on the PayPal button. You better believe there's a great big shiny donate page on the new website. But for now, comedianscomedian.com, click on the PayPal donate button. Please don't set up a regular subscription. That's all to come. I've promised it by the end of the year. I hope I can make that a reality. Um, but you can donate a pound a show, 
a one-off donation of five, ten, twenty pounds if you think it's great. And some people have uh, made donations even bigger than that. And to you, I am enormously grateful to all of you. Thanks for listening. If you don't have any money, please don't email me saying, I'm sorry, I can't donate. I've got no money. That's absolutely fine. There's loads of other ways to support the show. You can leave your favorite episode, a link to the SoundCloud link or the website on, uh, on a friend's Facebook page or email it to someone or have a conversation with a human being like we used to do in the old days. Get on iTunes. Give me a five-star review if you like. That's all good for visibility. Uh, and I'll tell you on the subject of iTunes, I'll tell you in the weeks to come about two new exciting podcast projects that I think you're really going to enjoy. That's all for now. Let's get back to the brilliant Deliso Chaponda. I think where I was going with that question about truth is the, um, the, one of the jokes you did for us just before we did yes. this recording in front of this assembled crowd. Yes. Uh, was this story about being the victim of an exorcism when you were a child? Actually, that's a perfect example of how I can play with the truth. So what actually happened is... I'm not, <laughs> I performed an exorcism. No, go on. <laughs> <laughs> no but you see, I'm, I'm not a Christian anymore. I'm a Baha'i. Ah, okay. Right? And when I switched religions, my parents, who are very Christian, were like, what are you doing? They called the pastor of our parish to come and have a chat with me and essentially persuade me out of going astray. Okay. Which I thought personally was hilarious. Yes. Right? But when I tried to convey to an audience, firstly, to people who are secular, it's, it's a bizarre story anyway. It's like, what's yeah. the big deal? And how emotional it was for me and how angry I was at, at what was happening was impossible to convey. So I had to start playing with the, the, the joke so that the same things are happening, right? Okay. But now I've made it a crazy story which everyone can laugh at. Yes. Yes. Now, I'd be interested. Do you, the audience, having heard that joke, how do you feel about that explanation? Do you feel let down that it didn't happen? Or do you write it off as, you know, the truth of it is, is similar? It's a joke. It makes you laugh. It doesn't That's have to be all true. They need. Great. There we go. In That's... fact, you see, if, if I was a better actor, I could lie totally. But again, there needs to be some little truth in it for me to tell it yes. authentically. Yes, and I'm wondering how much of my kind of... Uh, I, I, I confess to feeling slightly disappointed that it's not true. That's probably because I'm at the moment wearing my interviewer hat and thinking, I'm going to get some great stuff out of Delisa yes. about this exorcism. I was exorcised. Oh, oh, bollocks, it was only material. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but that's it's interesting. That, that's, a, that's almost like a kind of a... Um, it's almost like a cartoon version of the truth. But I'll tell you because another the, thing Because the, the, the intent behind it, the emotion behind it is real. Your outrage at, the, at that But situation. in every show I do, I'll only break reality to insanity twice. And usually it's at the end, right? So, for example, you, you watched my DVD. That exorcism joke happens at the end. Yes. Because if I do something like that too early... It makes them think, oh, this guy's it's all lies. It's all nonsense, yes. right? Yes. I can use it as a big finish and just be, you know, we're going into full cartoon mode. Sure. But until then, I, I, I keep my ground on reality. And I had a similar, my previous show, I had a, a joke about having sex with someone and being, electrocuting them, mm -hmm. right? To try and make them shake like they're having an orgasm. Total nonsense. <laughs> but again, I couldn't have it early. Even though it got such because a great it breaks response, the bond of, it breaks the bond yeah. of this is a realistic comic. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Because I'm not surreal in most of my jokes, so sure. I always just put them at the end. So one of you, what, what other kind of principles do you have of joke writing? Like, I, I noticed something, one of your jokes on the, on the Live in Zimbabwe yes. DVD um, was about uh, the burqa in Belgium. Yes. This one. So the joke is about the premise of the joke. Well, can you, you, you tell us yes. what it is and we'll sort of... So essentially, the joke is about how um, they were freaking out in Belgium. They banned wearing the burqa in Belgium, right? But in Belgium, uh, drugs are legal, prostitution's legal, age of consent is 16. So my punchline was, 
So you're telling me you could be on the streets of Brussels, high off your mind, having sex with a 14-year-old prostitute. You'll only get in trouble if you put her in a veil. Yes. Right? I think the, the age of consent is 14. 14. That's the, yeah, 14. Yeah, yeah, that's it, was, the... it was something even yeah. more outrageous. <laughs> exactly. Sure. But So I think this is the thing. I have a few parts of me which, which write. So part of me is it's, a lot of my jokes are sort of relationshipy. So that comes from anger, rage, loneliness, that sort of thing. Then separately, I've got that person who reads the newspaper and gets very upset at things, who writes. And that's what, where that joke came out of. Because I, I, I don't actually like comedy, which is about nothing. Do you know what I mean? When it's a bunch of silly one. This is also why I only will break reality a little bit in my set. Because with a few exceptions, who are just such brilliant writers that even myself who wants it to be about something gets upset, enjoys it. But generally, I want comedy to be about what's wrong with the world. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And, and about, I, I think the job of comedy is to take the teeth out of the monsters. Do you know what I mean? And, and so we talk about dictators. We talk about corporations which are taking over things. We talk about pain. You know, I mean, even personal pain. We talk about all these things. So, and I think the easiest way to do that is to play with logic. Like even that joke which I did I, uh, earlier, I did a, a, my first joke I wrote in the UK, it was turning the BNP's logic against them. Because yes. their logic was immigrants are, are taking all the jobs, all the women. And now I was turning it to them and saying, well, that's the advertising which got me to want to move here. Yes. And similarly, yes. with the burqa ban, I was turning their logic against them again because they're saying oh, we need to protect ourselves from these horrible things in society. And I'm like, well, some would say that prostitution and drugs are more of a threat than a veil. Sure. And it's about, is it something to do with finding paradoxes? Like in order to take that idea, a lot of people can read the newspaper and be angry about something, but in order to make it funny... Is that it struck me as that you, you kind of almost spe- you specialize in finding the internal paradox of a situation. And, and, playing, and sometimes it's a very hard issue. Like, um, it's easy when I'm involved, right? So if it's about race, if it's about something towards black people, it's easy, right? But I'm not Muslim. So it was harder for me to get that little paradox and to talk about it in a way that everybody would accept me saying it than it was for me to do a thing like the BNP, where I'm an immigrant. So sure. already... There's a, there's a connection based on this exactly. is the life experience of yeah. the protagonist. Yes, exactly. So uh, let's talk then about your, uh, your persona on stage. Yes. You, are, are you exactly who you are off stage? What are the, what are the concessions? What are the changes you I'll make? I'll tell you the interesting thing which happened. When I started out, there was a huge gap between the person I was on stage and who I was off stage. The person who I was on stage was who I wanted to be. <laughs> right? So it okay, was who you like, wanted to be off stage, who yes, you wanted to be in yes, your personal life. I was life. more okay. confident, I was more, uh, I could talk to women in the audience, I could bounce around. <laughs> I was this great version of myself. I was ready for every situation. Oh, it was brilliant. Off stage, I was very shy, I would say stupid things. I, I, I mean, I talked a lot, but it was like nervous energy, yes. right? And what happened is, as I became a more professional comedian, I became that person who I was on stage more off stage. Okay. So now I'm like now the person on stage is just me, a little bit accentuated. So well, you, your persona on stage didn't change, but you off stage grew closer to your persona. Yes, yes. That's unbelievable. <laughs> yes. That's what you should be telling. You should but be selling online courses. But that's why I did it. <laughs> no, no, it was fantasy. Like I think so much of. I actually think in a weird way that why people find me funny is I feel on some level they know what I've done. (laughs) I feel like they are enjoying the alchemy of... Because, you know, we like movies where the geek at the end turns around and punches the bullet. I'm doing that every day. And they don't... On some kind of level, I feel like it comes out in the subtext. Yes, because you're... Well, you feel that because you're... I, I'm just wondering about your status. As you were I saying, th- you, you seem to me to be quite high status on stage. I'm very high status on stage, but I, I wasn't always. Yes. And I, I think that that's why I'm different from someone who's like an arrogant high status person. Yeah. Because I'm joyous and I'm filled with glee. 
that people are actually listening to me now and people are, are, are paying attention to me because for years I didn't have that. And I just think that glee comes forward. Maybe it doesn't, but I feel like my stage persona is, is high status, but it's also I'm very, very happy that this is what's going on at this moment. That you definitely, you're one of those comics that has a real twinkle. I'm you know what I mean? delighted. Even now, I'm just, look, these people, they're paying attention. <laughs> they're listening to me. It's just great. It's great. It's great. <laughs> you suddenly, and I don't know if this will mean anything to you, uh, whether you ever saw this programme, but you suddenly massively reminded me of Crichton from Red Dwarf. I don't know if that means... Oh, uh, maybe that'll mean something to people. I will do the research the later. You do yes. the research. <laughs> just so happy to be here. That's <laughs> wonderful. Um, let's talk about your, uh, your, your globetrotting. So that... Yes. that um, that show that I, I saw the DVD, which is yes. available from your website, delisochaponda.com, yes, I would imagine. It's just deliso.com. Deliso.com. Chaponda. People can't do Chaponda. They'll get Deli- confused. Are you the only Deliso? You're like Elvis or Marilyn. There are other Delisos in Malawi, but none of them are comics, so I've Very got good. It. Very good. Deliso.com. And this was live in Zimbabwe. It's called the yes. Barely Legal. Barely Legal, yes. Uh, show. And what were the circumstances of that? Because I, something I notice about your work is, well, so visitors to your website will immediately spot down the right-hand side there is a... Uh, as well as your clips and things you can buy, there are downloadable files of, uh, here are examples of my corporate work. Yes. Which I thought, ah, oh, that's he's a smart cookie. Because, I mean, that's a, that's a really sensible strategic decision. Yes, it works. Because, but it's also because I realised very early on that a corporate is going to go to my website, click filth galore. Yeah. Offensive jokes about politics galore. Say, this guy is not for me. Sure. So I needed to have, look, I can be clean and wholesome. Look here, look here. Yes, and your bio, your write-up also says within, within the space of a week, Deliso did his filthy comedy show at such and yes. such, and two days later, an hour of uh, clean stuff at a Christian festival. No, but it's because I realized that on the business side, my versatility was actually playing against me. Because I think one of the best things you can be is a very good one-trick pony. Right? One of the best of the worst, sorry. One of the, one best, of the thing, best things, things you for can be. your career. Yes. Right? So if you are the best comic at being political, or you are the best sex comic, people will book you because they know what they're getting. Yes. Now, my brain doesn't work like that. I want to write about politics now, and then I want to talk about fingering, right? <laughs> and the problem I would find is that people would be like, oh, we can't book him. He talks about fingering. Yes. Or, and so I, I wanted to make it clear everywhere that, no, 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 I don't have to do it all the time. If I'm doing your church gig, of yes. course I'm not a fool. I w- Actually, identifying that y- your versatility is a double-edged sword, that's really canny. Mm. Because I think that you can see that in, in people. One of, one of the things I was going to ask you, and we'll, we'll, we'll move on to the Zimbabwe stuff in a moment, but um, one of the things I wanted to ask you was about, given your position as a, a, a comic who moves between different countries and continents... What's it like to be a headliner in one place and a touring comic in another country and uh, sort of simply a road act in another country? Not to denigrate road acts, but... It's true, though. But, you know, that, that must be kind of humbling to My go, wow, here's me... My life is very schizophrenic. Yeah. So, just last month, okay, so there was a week where... The weekend, I was in Dubai in a five-star hotel, right, performing to a huge crowd. A few days later... I was in Leeds in a tiny room, which was half empty, and then I was running to a train to get the last train home. And my life is just constantly like that. It's and, like, and tonight you're in Darlington in front of 800 people. Exactly. So it's, <laughs> exactly. it's just... But at the same time, it's just, it's just life, you know. I don't even know what to say about it, because there are times I wish it would change, but I don't know how to, so I just accept it. So you're, what would you change about it? I would like more consistency because I, I love some of my gigs. I mean, like the, the gigs which I do in Africa or when I do certain gigs, like, you, you know, if you could, if money was no issue, you would just do the lovely gigs. Mm-hmm. But of course, you've got to fill the gaps with all the rest of the chaff. And so I'm just like, I think it's all, a lot of people are like, what are you trying to get to? Are you trying to get to fame? Are you trying to get to fortune? I'm like, I'm trying to get to the point where I just do the gigs I want. That is a very noble ambition, I think. Because that would be amazing. Yes. If people call you up, you're like, no, I don't need your gig. <laughs> oh, sorry, it's not noble, selfish. <laughs> it's selfish. That was, yeah. it's selfish. It's selfish. It's very selfish. But essentially, if I, because I love gigging, and I just want to gig a lot. I mean, and I'm such a bad businessman. 
Like I had an opportunity, if I moved to South Africa right now or somewhere in Africa right now, I would probably make more money, right? But I would gig a lot less. Yes, okay. And I don't have kids or anything, so I'm like, no, right now I'd rather just gig a lot because that's my joy. So whereabouts is your profile the highest? Highest would probably be certain countries in Africa. Okay. Even though I gig very little there, when I gig there, there are like 5,000 people there, right? So it's, it's like I come back every year and I do a single thing here and there. And in some ways, uh, people know me, but they don't know me. And that I'm not like a household name. You couldn't just say Deliso and they'll know me. But if they saw my face, they'll be, oh, I've seen that guy on television. Okay. Oh, I know that guy from that show. And how do you go about, uh, how have you gone about cultivating those audiences? Like, so that room, the room that you're playing in yes. Zimbabwe in the DVD, what size was that room? So that was 800 people. Okay. So that was part of a festival, which yes. is a, festivals I always find, because I have immigration issues galore, right? Sure. You've got to know my biggest bane in my entire comedy career is immigration. Because I'm Malawian, I've got a hopeless passport, at every moment, I'm always applying for at least one visa. And I accept gigs based on if there's enough time to get a visa. Right? Okay. Yeah. Now, because of that, festivals are a boon to me. Because festivals is the one time when it's easy to get visas. Because they'll sponsor you. They'll and sponsor you. Yes, okay. Comedy clubs get very hesitant because they're like, oh, they have to take, they, they have to take a lot of risks. But festivals, they take that risk with the 100 people who they're bringing in. So I do a lot of festivals. So Zimbabwe was a festival. And uh, yeah, it was a wonderful festival. And so you, is it the case that like in these places where, uh, it's like you said, certain countries, people will see your face on a poster and go, yes. oh, it's this guy. Are you touring within a festival circuit over there? Or are you actually going and breaking new ground and saying, I'm, I'm going to come and create a market? Zimbabwe, I, I was the first one to do it. Because um, essentially there are a lot of Zimbabwean com- comedians but in that festival, the Harare International Festival of the Arts, it was all music and dance and stuff like that. And then I think it was 2008, I did a comedy show there. Do, right? Were you invited to, or did you break in and say, there needs to be a comedy I show? I pitched it. Okay. They looked at my stuff, they're like, okay. Because you see, the thing is, in some countries in Africa, the big issue is, of course, if you tell the wrong joke, not only will you get in trouble, we'll get in trouble. Yeah. We could be thrown in prison. Well... Realistically, probably not thrown in prison, but our funding could be pulled. Yeah. Right? Now, by showing that I was a comedian who I know the line and I dance on it and I never cross the line. And you, you see, I've performed in Malawi, which is kind of comparable. I was able to say, come on, just try this. And so they did it. It went really well. It was really cheap for them and it brought a lot of comedy. Now, when I did the second show, the one which you saw the filmed one, there are like 15 comedy shows in the festival. Yes. I was like, I missed the days when I was the only one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so when you're... I mean, and, and in that show, you told a, a story about insulting the Malawian yes. government accidentally and them sending three... Uh, I don't know what this... People from the, the censorship, censorship board. That was all true, all true. So when I was... So just to, to, to recap, essentially, I, I did a joke in Malawi, a few years ago, upset. Uh, uh, it wasn't even the joke. It was the reporter's interpretation of my joke, mm-hmm. which made it a little worse than it was, much more criticizing than it was. Are you, can I ask you, and we can yes. cut this bit if it's a yes, yeah. but are you now even, are you downplaying the joke that you said out of a fear that there could be reprisals? No, 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 no. no. Actually, so no, you no, genuinely no. think it you were misinterpreted? Really, the joke I wondered was whether silly. that was a diplomatic was silly, answer. But, okay. Uh, Essentially, it was a joke about the flag. We chained the flag from a rising sun to a full sun, and I implied we should have chained it to an eclipse because our country was falling apart. That's all they needed. That's the most absurd thing. It wasn't like I was doing hard-hitting Frankie Boyle, like, let's bring down the man joke. Mm. It was a silly joke. But that became an article where I'm criticizing the government, which became censorship board, calling the producer, which became panicking, my dad being called into the cabinet and yelled at. It was, it was crazy. And it was all from such a tiny little pee that it made me think on some level, imagine I had actually been criticizing. Yeah. Who knows? So your, um, your response to that, as, in the, as told in the story, was to perform in front of an invited audience that ended up looking like yes. the UN. Exactly, exactly. And again, that was, again, a little bit of an overstatement, but it was okay. we talked to, 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 to ambassadors and got their advice, and we, we just did a lot of pre-show 
control of the situation. And then you had to actually do a gig where they the were censorship the board they were, were in the, the crowd. crowd. But I, I read their letter on stage. It was great. It was one. It was the funniest moment of the entire show. <laughs> and did they laugh? They laughed. They loved it. Okay. And were you? What were you? What must that have felt like to be going out, like to be in the wings before the show, going? I've got to go out and prove that I'm not saying anything negative. And presumably, this is the position you were in at the time. Were that was a ridiculous joke. What else might they find offensive? But the weird thing was, I couldn't wait because I thought it was hilarious. I think the problem. I think if you've got this too as a comic. We will do stupid things because we know it's hilarious, and we just can't wait for that big laugh. Yeah, <laughs> and it could be highly misguided, but we just want to do the big laugh. And did you never fear that you would laugh yourself into reprisals? Re- realistically, because my dad was in the government, it was more that I'd get him in trouble. Yeah. Right? He was afraid that he'd lose his position. Right? Um, if I was put in prison, it would be for a day. Because he would get me out. He'd pay. But a lot can happen in one day. Sure. One of the things I'm really impressed by is that, and particularly on that um, uh, on that DVD, is that I oh, know I feel like I'm advertising it here, but it is, it is available. Um, and if you use the discount code, no, no, mind. That's, <laughs> no. <laughs> that's just for me. Um, but the uh, you actually made material about, and I thought this was brilliant. You you did observational comedy about what it must be like to start a coup d'état. Yes, and that I've never seen anyone do anything like that. I was like, "This is brilliant." You liken it in the material to the embarrassment of trying to be the first person in a group to suggest having an orgy, which is like a, a brilliant comic conceit. But the simple fact that you're doing material, you're doing observational material about about the the real the nuts and bolts of political unrest. But I'll tell you the interesting thing in my little. I mean, there were also jokes about fingering, but you know, <laughs> but in my spreadsheet. That joke only works in Africa. I see, okay. There are a lot of jokes I do about... I'm, in the UK, I would say I'm a relationship comic. Mm-hmm. In Africa, I'm a political comic. And it's very interesting. Like, in a, in a kind of sad way, it's getting easier to be a political comic in the UK. Because, yes, sure. But a few years ago, I had nothing to talk about. Everything was hanky-dory. So here, I just talked about my horrible love life. In Africa, I talk about the horrible politics and the things going on in the world and you actually a few years ago did you you did an edinburgh show that was about the fact that it's like stop worrying people yes, in the uk it was because westerners calm down and it was just about the financial crisis yes and just how it's it's things were lovely <laughs> and i'm like what are you doing all the coolest thing why are you dismantling the nhs it's freaking awesome and yes. so this is the thing so now i'm doing now my jokes have started to get a little bit more political because it's like what are you doing it's awesome leave it alone so your, your strategy as a businessman, yes. as, a, as a career, because I think of you as a, you're, you're clearly career-minded, you're business-minded. What other kind of strategic tips do you have for coping with life as a comic? Where, you're, where you, more than most people, are inventing it, you're making it up as you go along. I think the thing to do, again, I'm only marginally successful at this, so, so I could be, it could be the blind leading the blind. But I think you plan for the moment not for the future, right? Because I know a lot of people who will say stuff like, you know, when I've got an agent, I'm going to do this. Or, or there's a brilliant comic I know who he didn't have a car. And he was like, oh, I'm going to gig more when I get a car. And, I'm going, and people plan so much of their career and their business thing for the future. It's like, I talked to someone about putting out a DVD. I was like, oh, no, no, I'll do that after I get a big break. And I'm like, mm-hmm. no, just do it now. And I think my big thing is I try to do it now. So like that DVD, which you mentioned, I self-produced it. I paid for it. Maybe it was folly, but I just do it now. And again, I, I, I've, my dream, I realized a few years ago, was I want to do a, an African tour where in a year I do every country in Africa, right? And that would be amazing. Just spend a week in each country and go around. And I was like, you know, when I get a big break, that's what I'm going to do. And I was like, no, I have no time to waste doing this. I need to start building this. So maybe when I'm 40... I'm going to do this La Africa tour. But what I'm doing is I'm opening all the doors by yes. going to each African country. And when I have at least half of them on board, I think the other half will come on. That's, that is breathtaking so in its it. scope. Well done. That's great. <laughs> but I think I, you've got to have crazy pipe dreams because even if you fail, you'll be closer. Yes. You know what I mean? So let's, I mean, this is, do you read reviews of your show? They crush my soul. They crush well, my soul. This is why I ask. Because yes. 
I, so you do read them? You, yes, I do. And actually, I think you, if you read them, you've read the last review <laughs> I'm getting. Because I find it's, it's very crushing when they don't describe what's going on in the crowd. Yeah, of right? course. I think the number one thing you could do, the reason I respected Ebert, Roger Ebert with movies, yeah. is he might say, he would say, okay, so I, this is not my cup of tea, I found it boring. I found it very. Other. However, the people in the room were were screaming. They were clapping. It's just not for me. There are certain reviewers in the UK where it's not that. It's just the gospel according to them, and it really hurts your feelings. What well, hurts my feelings? I'm just like there was a woman weeping with laughter in the front. At least you could have said there was a woman weeping. Anyway. <laughs> so if you were to review yourself, yes. what would your review of, of Deliso be? Now, am I being reviewed in the UK or am I being reviewed in Africa? Uh, it's you doing it on both occasions. So give us two, one for okay. each. So situation. me in the UK, I would say that I am a 100% crowd pleaser, right? And, uh, you know, I, I, I just continue, don't put the foot down off the gas, laughs, and also... It's all about rounds of applause. It's not about laughter. So I'm really going for the... the why, why is that? Why is it more about applause than laughter? Because I, I don't think a laugh is enough. So, oh, I see. So, so you, mean, you mean applause with laughter applause as opposed laughter. to making yes. a point that people yes, agree yes, with. Yes, yes, I understand. So I actually I wanted to do a show called Applause Break. Right? Ah, that's a great idea. And <laughs> all it would be is... Because, again, I, I had no theme, but I was like, I'll just have a clicker. And every applause break, I'll, I'll press the clicker. And the no, aim the body is to count of the show. have a body count of the show. But I thought it might be considered a little arrogant. <laughs> a, li- a little. <laughs> but essentially, that's me in the UK, where it's just, uh, you know, rumbling at the audience. It's not really about anything. You know, it's a bit about love, a bit about whatever. But I'll do whatever, and I will... It's, it goes to very lowbrow places. It's quite ridiculous just to get people laughing. In Africa... I would say this is a guy who's on a mission. <laughs> he's talking about politics. He's talking about... Uh, it, it's almost like a, a social justice experiment plus laughs. So is there, is there an element to which you feel like you don't need to be engaging with British politics because you're already satisfying your desire to, to engage in the African shows? No, no, no. Or is, is it just that you can come over here and just have a laugh? It's not even that. And... It's not even that. It's that I write from pain, Right. So again, if I'm lonely, I write about love, right? If I read something in a newspaper which write, makes me angry, I write about that. And for a long time, I mainly get that in Africa, yes. right? Because we've got corruption galore, we've got starvation galore. So these are the things which I want to talk about in Africa. In the UK, not so much. But now, actually, see, I'm doing jokes about like the disability benefit being cut. I'm doing jokes about like, or, you know, what's going on I, there's a lot more to talk about, right? And it's, it's so my next show after this one, The Love Sucks, or the next one I think is going to be called The Search for British Values. And that one's going to be very political because I have a lot of political thoughts coming in my head, which I, I usually don't in the UK. And with those, with that, that show as an example, that forthcoming yeah. as yet unwritten show, as an example, are you writing that stuff purely because you think it, you feel it, it hurts you and you've got to get it out? Or is there, any, is there any element to which you want to effect change in the world and effect conversations and you want to agitate? Yes, I think that I think... Now, I don't think comedy is that revolutionary, right? I don't think comedy can, like, you know, make us storm the Bastille. But I do think that it is very... Good. I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, Malawi threw two gay men in prison right? Um, It was a horrible situation. And also the culture in Malawi was we don't talk about this, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, You know, these people don't exist. Now, in a show I did in Malawi, I talked about them, right? And I talked about it and I made people laugh about that thing which you don't bring up. And then after the show, I overheard people talking about it. And I was like, that's what comedy can do. It can't free anybody it can't change the law, but it can get people thinking about and talking about things, and I, I kind of like that. Now, it's not the... My number one thing is make them laugh, right? And the other thing is I think that if something's scary or horrible, if you... Like, I told you about that molestation joke I did, partly because I was so upset at the, the pedophile jokes I saw, because I thought they're betraying what comedy's for. 
because it, it's just a gratuitous little, ha, I shocked you. So I wrote a joke where I'm talking about how you cope with having horrible things in your past. And then when I got emails from people who've been through it saying, I can't believe you made me laugh about this, I was like, that's why, that's why I did it. That's what it's for. And so I think, again, it's like we, we make the horrible... My show is right now is about loneliness and heartbreak. And if I can... I, I did a preview of it, uh, and there was a group of divorcees who came to the show and were screaming with laughter, and I was like, yeah, it's, it's for you. This is the show. Ladies and gentlemen, we should wrap up fairly soon. Yes, but before do. we do, um, does anyone else have any questions uh, that they would like to ask? So the gentleman's asking about the difference in atmosphere and the, your, in the comparison between the 5,000 people in Malawi or a pub in Leeds in the UK, yes. which kind or a club, what, what comparisons can you draw between them and which do you prefer, what's the difference in atmosphere? Okay, so interestingly, of course, I prefer numbers. I love the, the, the grandeur and having thousands of people there listening to you. But <laughs> That's very refreshing to hear a comic refreshing. admit that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I want loads. <laughs> I want yeah. loads of people there. It's amazing. But on the flip side, there's some material which only works in an intimate atmosphere. So I wouldn't want to stop doing the little intimate gigs, but I'd like to do less of them. <laughs> very good answer. At what level do you go from being a, a club or theatre touring comic to being a corporate comic? Okay, again, this is one where it could be the blind leading the blind because I don't do a lot of them, but I do some of them. And I found that essentially when you are bankable, extremely bankable, just like um, you can be clean for 20 minutes or 30 minutes, you're extremely funny every time, and you're bankable, then you can you can work in a corporate atmosphere. But not when you're being edgy, not when you're like... It's, I don't even... I can't, I can't even trace how I started doing a few more. I got one, and I did it well. So the first one is always luck, because someone saw you and is like, hey, come to my company. But once you've had one, then you can pitch to others. Hey, I hosted this conference... Maybe I could host another conference, and then one leads to another, which leads to another. But the other thing I found, which is, for me personally, I found getting older helped, right? Because I would do horribly at them, and I would get barely any offers when I was sort of young. And, but as I got older, and I looked a bit more like them, and I dress in a suit, and, and now I'm just I'm an easier corporate sell than I was a few years ago when I'd be chasing them to no avail. <laughs> so uh, the I will I will go to my uh, my ComCom Gold section. Um, I, we've covered a lot of this. What what elements of stand up comedy do you wish that you had more facility with? Ah, okay, okay. So I wish that I could do voices. Yes, voices and accents. Every a lot time of people I say that, acts, do it. I'm like, oh, you you you're cheating. I wish I could do it. It's so beautiful. It's amazing. Because I tell stories on stage. And I watch other comics tell stories and make them sing. Like if I was doing that story about my dad and I could make my dad talk one way, the priest talk another way, it would just take that joke to another level. One of my favorite comics, Eddie Murphy. And every story he tells, he's every person in the story. And it's not just in his stand-up, in interviews. He can't help it. If he's telling a story, he becomes those people. Oh, I was like, give me that talent. It seems to me that ex-computer programmer or uh, computer student uh, Delisha Japonda would by now have thought, I will take some acting classes. I have done acting classes, but I, it's, there's some things where it's a knack, right? I can get, I can get, you can get all the CDs in the world and practice an accent. And then there's some person who just overhears it and does it. So if I've got a play role... I can, I'll learn it. But I just wish I could do it easily. There's some people, it's just magic. And finally, Deliso, thank you for coming on. Could you tell us, please, your final, what would be your, what would be on your comedy gravestone? Graves, comedy gravestone, oh, that's a tough one. I would say, um, gigged a lot and almost never died. 
but now he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking Deliso Chaponda. So that was Deliso. What a charming man. What a funny guy. And what a brilliant perspective. Uh, another completely fresh perspective. I, I'm always... Uh, surprised and pleased when uh, the same questions. I, I try to kind of come up with a couple of uh, ComCom gold questions, if you'll permit the awesome arrogance. Um, but uh, it's really exciting to hear people's different takes on the same ideas and where that can lead to. So thank you so much to Deliso for coming on that. Thanks once again to Neil Jolly and everyone at Hilarity Bites. This was recorded live at the Darlington Comedy Festival. I'm so glad we could make it work. Neil's been trying to get me up there for a live ComCom for a couple of years. And um, very exciting to get up there. And a lovely little venue we were in as well. I, I shall definitely make that part of my calendar for years to come. That's all for now. Thank you to all of those log legends, all the podblinzers before. Thank you to Olivia Phipps, who's also chief podblin at the moment. She is helping me out with a lot of those tagging things. Look forward to the new website next week with Adam Buxton. And that's all for now. You can go to uh, follow Deliso Chaponda on Twitter. You can go to, I think it's deliso.com, isn't it? That's what he said. Uh, Great work there, and uh, thanks, as ever, to Nathan Wood, who co-produced this show. I will speak to you next week with exciting website news and a brilliant, brilliant podcast from Count Buckley's. Speak soon. (laughs) 